Tap again. Okay. Welcome to Washington Ethical Society, and thank you for your patience this morning. I'm Karen Schofield-Leka. My pronouns are per and pers, short for person, and I am the officiant today. Here at Washington Ethical Society, we value the inherent worth of every person. And as an expression of our values, we are practicing caution and streaming platform from the main hall without in-person attendees just yet. Our guest speaker is coming in by Zoom, and there are just a few of us here at the Meeting House today, socially distancing and practicing for a return to fully hybrid programs. As we've experienced, it's complicated, so we're working hard to make it work well for everyone. Platform attendance will continue to be online next week, and after that, the reopening task force will reassess the risks and benefits of in-person attendance. Whether you're watching the recording later or live now on Zoom, it is good to connect across time and space. If you are joining live on Zoom, please say hello in the chat. Having your chat set for everyone will give everyone in the Zoom room a chance to see your greetings. Please say hello whether you are a brand new visitor, a longtime member, a neighbor from another ethical society or Unitarian Universalist congregation, or a person who is not in any of these categories. All are welcome. There's also a closed captioning option on Zoom that can be turned on or off as you prefer. The chat will stay open through much of the platform service, closing for the address itself and then reopening. Visitors, we hope that you'll say hello in the chat too, and that you might send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, at maceot@ethicalsociety.org. That's M-A-C-E-O-T at ethicalsociety.org. If you're a visitor watching this recording later, this invitation is for you as well. You can fill out a connection form at Thomas. I'll now read a few of the greetings that folks have written into the chat. And while I'm doing that, you might want to get a candle to light during our candle lighting segment. So, good morning. Is this working? Great. So I see good morning wishes from Christine. Perry B says, good morning, folks, from Perry B. Nice to see the hall again today. And me, of course. Thank you very much, Perry. Jeff Mehal says, live from the hall, it's Karen. Good morning, Karen and Wes. Alex Dixon says, good morning, everyone. This is Alex Dixon from Fairfax. And we see a lot of chat notes about audio, which we have now corrected. Thank you for your patience about all of that. Lucy from Amherst, Massachusetts. Adam Goldberg, who says, good morning, everyone. Please join me and others for coffee hour after platform. Thanks, Adam. Lynn Cox says, good morning. Good morning, everyone, from John and Abby Dakin. Donna Taylor says, good sunny morning, all. Good morning, all, from Joe Klein. Ellen Osborne says, good morning, from DC. Vivek says, good morning. Hank says, good morning. Judy Ohm says, good morning. Lots of good morning wishes. Mark is from calling, dialing in, watching from Capitol Hill. A yay to the tech team from Donna, indeed. 
and thanks to from lots of folks to the tech team for working on it. Vincent Tyler says, good morning, good people of Wes. Nice to see the main hall again from Donna. Mark Mayer, good morning. Judy, oh yes, thanks for everyone for rolling with it. So that's sort of us watching and speaking, but especially the tech team who are doing amazing work. Good more good mornings. Let's see. I think I read applause while we deal with it. <laughs> if we all learned ASL, this wouldn't be an issue. Well, it would be a nice thing for many more of us to learn ASL for sure. Lynn, when I breathe in, I breathe in peace. Yippee, we're back. Now we can hear, we can hear. Yay, yay, yay. Good morning, visitors, friends, and members of Wes from a hand up support services. Awesome. Let's see, welcome to all. Let me see, lots of chats here. Lindsay Hill says, hi everyone, first time participating. Welcome indeed, Lindsay, we're delighted to have you with us. Um, Amy Newfield says, thanks for the invite. Oh, hello from Boulder. Buenos dias from Mark Mayer. Jay Champagne says, hello. Sue Smith, good morning all. Abchi says, hello from Texas. Hello from Donna Radner this morning. Hi from Susan Runner and from Walter and Susan. Uh, good morning from the Uncle Devin Show in DC. And Lindsay, welcome to you from others in the chat if you're not observing that. Um, Andrea B says, hello, and thank you for investing in making the virtual experience accessible. Hello from Chile, Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's our speaker, Stephen Barry. He says, it's good to be here. Bill Wilson, good morning. Shirley Storm says, good morning. Good morning, friends at West from Buscola. Let's see, good morning from Scott and Heather in Stowe, Ohio. Heather and Scott Pritchard, miss and love each of you. We miss and love you too. Hank says, good morning to all from Betty Chia. Caro, glad to see you. Oh, I see, I gather I blend into the background. <laughs> Johnny and Wayne say good morning. Wow, we've got lots of folks. Kelly Williams, Elamin is visiting from Rockville and excited to be here and we are excited to have you. Joe London says good morning all. And Sue Jacobson says, good morning, everyone. So we've got lots of folks from lots of places, and we're delighted to have each and every one of you here this morning. It is good to connect and share this time together. I invite you to settle in wherever you are as we continue to gather. Our opening words this morning were inspired by several authors, including Andrew Pakula, the Reverend Dr. Marion, Marilyn Sewell, and Dr. Reverend Sherry Woodbury. Welcome into this circle of community, this sacred space. Be not tentative. Bring and be your whole self. Bring the joy that makes your heart sing. Bring your kindness and your compassion. Bring your sorrow and your pain. 
bring your brokenness and your disappointments. Welcome into this circle of love and justice, a circle of vision and reflection, a forum for deciding and empowering. Here we are gathered again at the cusp of the future, at the boundary that holds community together. We are here brought to this moment by a series of choices and promises, by hope and gratitude, by our own shadows faced and befriended. Welcome into this community where we dare to dream and believe in those dreams. Somewhere out there, all we dream is possible. Somewhere in here, we are sowing the seeds. We begin our platform with music from interim music coordinator, Leah Morris, and guest musician, Elise Witt. So I opened up the Singing the Living Journey, the Teal Songbook in the uh, UU and UU affiliated communities. And I wanted to learn this song, Open the Window, and I started to sing it, and then I realized that the composer, so I opened up the Singing the Living Journey the Teal Songbook in the uh, UU and UU affiliated communities. And I wanted to learn this song, Open the Window, and I started to sing it, and then I realized that the composer is this wonderful, delightful woman who I had the chance to meet a couple of years ago. And so I reached out, and I should say it was a virtual meeting. We still haven't shared physical space, but Elise Witt has been gracious enough to make a version of herself and her rendition of how she hears this song, Open the Window. And I'm really excited to be singing with her and to hear more about her experience of coming into the song and interpreting it. And uh, yeah, so Elise, take it away. Greetings, everyone. My name is Elise Witt. And today I wanna to share with you an adaptation that I have made of the Sea Island spiritual called Heist the Window Noah. I, um, I call it open the window and let the dove fly in and we're going to do it with sign language. So if you make a windowsill and then let your window rise up, opening up. So this is open the window and then gather the children around. You have open the window children, open the window now, open the window children, open the window let the dove fly in and just let your beautiful dove's wings fly. So that's the chorus. It goes like this. Open the window, children. Open the window now. Open the window, children. Open the window, let the dove fly in. Open the window, let the dove fly in. And that last line is our response. Whatever I sing to you, situations that need some opening for the dove to fly in, we answer, open the window, let the dove fly in. So here we go. Mama and Papa are fighting like snakes. Open the window, let the dove fly in. Baby is crying like her heart will break. Open the window, let the dove fly in. Chorus, open the window, children. Open the window now. Open the window, children. Two times, open the window, let the dove fly in. 
Open the window, let the dove fly. You know that neighbors lock their doors, build fences so high. Open the window, let the dove fly. Don't see what's to discover on the other side. Open the window, let the dove fly. There's borders round countries, borders round the skies. Open the window, let the dove fly. The only border close you in is the border around your mind. Open the window, let the dove fly. Chorus. Open the window, children. Open the window now. Open the window, children. Open the window, let the dove fly in. Open the window, let the dove fly in. Some people have money, some people have none. Open the window, let the dove fly in. What's the use of having money if your heart's gone numb? Open the window, let the dove fly in. Well, this big old world is in a great big mess. Open the window, let the dove fly in. Let's open the window, find peace and rest. Open the window, let the dove fly in. One more time on the chorus. Open the window, children. Open the window now. Open the window, children. Open the window, let the dove fly. A little more. Open the window, let the dove fly. Now let's really sing it with all our gorgeous harmonies. Open the window, let the dove fly. Take a nice breath. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Welcome once again. Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you're interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc slash Wes, I'm sorry, excuse me, it's tiny.cc slash read SOP. You can record a video of yourself reading the statement of purpose if that works better for you, or you can present the statement of purpose alongside us as we broadcast live. If you're relatively new to the community or haven't been as active lately, it's an easy way to introduce or reintroduce yourself. Today's reader is board member Vincent Tyler, who has prepared a video with his invitation to join him in being a reader. Hello, my name is Vincent Tyler, and I am the Board of Trustees representative to the Lay Leadership Committee. As we look toward a time when we re-enter the building, I would like to invite new and longtime members alike to make a recording introducing or reintroducing themselves to the community before reading the Statement of Purpose. Please tell us your name and any groups or committees you may be a part of, and perhaps one thing you would like to share that you truly believe in before reading the Statement of Purpose. Please email that recording to LLDC at ethicalsociety.org. It will be played at platform 
so that we may recognize and know one another, put names to faces, while also hearing the statement of purpose in our shared voices. One thing that I truly believe in is helping others achieve their goals. It allows me to enjoy their success as my own. And now, our statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you so much, Vincent. If you have a candle at home, I invite you to light it now as Interim Leader Lynn Cox lights the candle here in the hall and I share our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of Olympic and Paralympic athletes gathered from around the world, representing both the pinnacle of their sporting prowess and the global yearning for peaceful solidarity. And a bit of a reminder of how far we have to go yet to achieve that. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. and let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. Today's platform is part of our theme of widening the circle. Today's time for all ages has something to say about that. Lynn, can you tell us more? Hi friends, I'm Lynn Cox. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm the interim leader here at the Washington Ethical Society. Our platform today grapples with a difficult period in American history and how the harms of that time are still with us and the ways that we can face up to history that may have been hidden or intentionally forgotten and how we can participate in reclaiming the truth. We had originally planned a platform on this with Dr. Jim Lowen, 
and we grieved alongside his family when he passed in the fall. We're glad to welcome Jim's wife Susan this morning and grateful to Dr. Stephen Berry for picking up the torch and inviting us to help continue the work. As humanists, we know that part of our work is to stop the systems that hurt people. And we know that kids are strong enough and smart enough to learn the truth about racism. Humanism in practice means living into a world where everyone can be their whole, full human selves. We also know that people of all ages thrive when we celebrate joy as well as face challenges. Something we must remember alongside the facts of racial injustice is the resilience, brilliance, truth-telling, excellence, beauty, and joy among African-Americans. Joy helps sustain people. Art is a declaration of human worth and human experience, even in the face of dehumanization. So to invoke an example of black excellence and beauty, I want to share with you two poems by Langston Hughes. You can find both of them in this edition of Poetry for Young People. So the first is I Too Sing America. And when I was talking with Stephen, our guest speaker, about today's platform, he reminded me that this poem speaks in conversation with Walt Whitman's I Hear America Singing. Hugh's poem moved the conversation forward, centering the black voice, black experience, black person in a poetic vision casting about what it means to be American. Langston Hughes composed this poem in 1924 at the age of 22. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. Celebrate beauty indeed. The second poem is a short one. This is Final Curve. When you turn the corner and run into yourself, then you know that you have turned all the corners that are left. Inspired by the beauty, resilience, and persistence of poets and artists like Langston Hughes, May we as a society gather the courage to turn the corner. As we consider turning toward truth, let's enter into the centering time of our platform. Let's begin with one nourishing breath. Inhale in a way that feels good to your body. Cherish that breath in your body for a moment. And exhale, returning that breath to the world. Breathe in, pause, breathe out. Beings like us take in oxygen and give back carbon dioxide. Beings like the trees and the algae take in carbon dioxide and give back oxygen. We all live with this rhythm of giving and receiving, this rhythm of nourishing and being nourished, a living network of mutuality. If you are able, locate your pulse or your heartbeat. Maybe you can feel it with a hand over your heart. If not, keep breathing. 
and imagine the drumbeat of your heart. Imagine that muscle in your core holding on and letting go, moving the blood all through your body. Listen to your breath and your heartbeat. It says, I am, I am, I am. You matter. And when we listen together across time and space, maybe we can hear something else. We are, we are, we are. Our breath depends on other living beings and they on us. The water of life in our veins also flows throughout the earth. We are part of something together. Each of us, a brilliant point of inherent worth and dignity in a glittering net of interdependence. Breathe in, breathe out. Sometimes we forget inherent worth. Sometimes we forget interdependence. These are true things and we can return to them. When we become frightened or sad or angry, when we momentarily forget to treat one another and ourselves as precious connected beings of worth, we can return to our breath and to our heartbeat. We are, we are, we are. Breathe in, cherish your breath, breathe out. We continue our meditation in silence and in the music that follows.
hypnotic music. Lovely. It is my pleasure to welcome to platform today our guest speaker, Dr. Stephen Berry, joining us via Zoom from Michigan. Stephen is an associate professor of history and American culture at the University of Michigan. His research and writing explore the relationship between race and culture in the 20th century U.S. His first book, The Jim Crow Routine, Everyday <clears throat> excuse me, Everyday Performances of Race, Civil Rights, and Segregation in Mississippi, examined the daily interactions of Black Southerners and White Southerners in Mississippi in the last decades of Jim Crow rule and during the Civil Rights Movement. Stephen is one of the scholars carrying on the work of the late Dr. James Lowen regarding sundown towns. Stephen, welcome to Wes. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to ask if I can share my screen so I can bring up some slides. And it looks like that's currently disabled for me. Well, I will say while uh, while that's being sorted out, um, thank you, Karen. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. It's um, I appreciate all of the the work that went into to putting this together today. Lynn and I have had a number of conversations. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, John, and the tech team for uh, for all the work you've been doing. And I also want to just note that I'm. Uh, a special welcome and thank you to Jim's family who were here um, as part of this video as well. And I know that this started um, a while back uh, with the, the plan of Jim coming here to talk about this work. And I'm excited to be able to do that. And I know that Jim would be really excited knowing that we were doing that today as well. Um, and looks like we have some slides here. That's great. Thank you, tech team again. And I want to just start by uh, just um, 
noting um, a little bit about uh, Jim's work and this the the screen capture you see here in the middle of this page is from the website, which is really a website that centers uh, the various projects Jim was working on, including this Sundown Towns project. And just to note a couple of things that the website is listed on this slide, I will show that to you a few times today, just as a reminder to check out some of these things. There are also two email addresses, uh, both uh, go to me. Um, and so feel free to reach out to me. In fact, I'm hoping that many of you will reach out to me after today. And uh, let me bring up, great. Um, so I just wanna start by uh, talking a little bit about Jim himself before talking specifically about the Sundown Towns research because um, I know some of you in the room uh, knew Jim, and um, he left a huge mark as a historian, as a sociologist, especially as a public historian. And I'm showing uh, you some of the, the work that he's done, and I'm sure there are people in the room who have read some of these things, if not all of these things. And uh, we're going to talk especially about uh, the research that began with this book, sundown towns uh, that Jim began um, more than 20 years ago and, and started as a much smaller project about something he was noticing in his uh, home state of Illinois near where he grew up. And that the more research he did, the more he realized this was not just a, a something happening locally, but was in fact a national um, um, occurrence. And, and the research grew from there, became part of this book, which I encourage you all to read to learn more about this history. Uh, but it also took off from like realizing that the work didn't end there, that it led to um, in part the inspiration for, for this website. And I'll show you again, this is uh, the website justice.tougaloo.edu. Um, and there's lots of things in there connected to Jim's work. You'll see in that link the reference to Sundown Towns, which includes this database of, of places that we know about, of information we have about some of these towns, um, as well as an opportunity for that to grow, that we know that there are many more of these places past and present that, that we want to add to the website. But the way into that is through this page and where you see Sundown Towns. And also just want to take a moment to note that there are lots of other things on this website, including teaching resources, whether that's whether you are a K through 12 instructor um, or college instructor or doing things in the community like bringing people together to read a common book or to do some kind of shared project, all of those things. Uh, running through uh, this website and, and, a, and a, um, a website that is growing um, steadily as we add more and more content. Um, so with that in mind, what I would like to do with my time today um, is to talk a little bit more about um, the history of sundown towns, about what those things are, what we mean by those. I'm going to talk just a little bit about sundown towns in the DC metro area, um, just to, as a way of, of reminding us in part that these places are all over the country, uh, especially outside the South. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, and then 
uh, I want to talk a little bit about how to research sundown towns because in part this discussion today um, is to encourage, inspire people to want to take on some of this research as well. We are dependent on people to volunteer to do this work and I am eager to work with people who are interested in doing that. So I'll talk through some of those steps to give you a sense of what this work would be like. Okay, with that in mind, let me start by talking a little bit about this history of sundown towns. And I'll note that on this slide, you see this uh, slide of the continental US with the red dots. Um, that's from our website. That's actually one of the maps we have that leads into our database. And clicking on any of those red dots brings up information about the town or suburb in that place. And I'll just note for a moment that you can see the ways in which these red dots are all over the country. And initially you might notice that there seem to be quite a number of them around uh, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan. Um, and there are, there's no question there are a lot of sundown towns in that place, but some of the, some of the, one of the reasons why there is such a cluster on this particular map is that that's where we have done especially quite a, quite a bit of research and especially Jim initially. And even as there may be fewer dots in other places, in some of those places, it's just because we haven't done that research yet. Uh, but again, let me talk a little bit about this notion of sundown towns. Um, a sundown town refers to a town or suburb that intentionally excluded some racial groups. Most often that's referred to, that, that excluded racial group has been Black people, but we also know that there are accounts of Jewish people being excluded, Chinese people, um, indigenous populations, various other groups in various parts of the country excluded them from residing in that town. And this term sundown is actually referring to the, 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 the um, sort of the ideal that somebody has to be out of town by sundown. That obviously means that, well, maybe this person could work there, could potentially like shop there, uh, but they can't live there. They have to be out of town, um, hence sundown towns. And we know also that it varies a lot in terms of how people have, have implemented these policies, these practices. Sometimes there were actual signs, um, signs uh, often with racial slurs on them, but some sort of sign that might, at, at the city limits that might say something about having to be out by sundown. Uh, sometimes there were whistles that would go off at six o'clock or or sometime around sundown that was meant to signal to, to people in the town, you should be out of this. Like if you are part of one of these groups, uh, you should be out of town. Um, in some cases, places passed ordinances officially um, identifying that this place is a sundown town. And we have a few examples of that, but the probably the most common practice, at least as far as we've noticed, is word of mouth, of like reputation, of people sharing that like, this is a place where some groups are not welcome and passing on that information in some cases saying, well, that's a town. Everybody knows that's a sundown town. But in some cases, also sharing that with visitors coming into the town saying, hey, you should be out of this town by sundown town by sundown. So all of that, those sort of ways in which this practice works, and it varies from place to place and from time to time. Um, and then there are the ways in which these practices are enforced. 
sometimes that's through policing, whether it is through like police actually enforcing these measures, um, you know, police officers essentially escorting somebody out of town, but also in somewhat less indirect ways, such as pulling people over who are of a particular race in particular moments. Uh, but beyond the police themselves, we also know that these places were maintained as sundown towns, sometimes through actual acts of violence in cases in, uh, in which some, some particular group, there might have even been a group of people living in that town, such as, for example, in Greensburg, Indiana, who at one point um, a white mob formed and drove them out of most of that population out of the town. But also beyond the acts of actual violence, just the threat of violence was often enough to keep a place a sundown town. Uh, we know that in particular with suburbs that zoning ordinances uh, often do that same kind of work about making it a place that, that is going to exclude particular groups. Um, and of course, reputation, like the, the, the these places being enforced, like because people know that place has a reputation for being a sundown town. Now, one of the things I mentioned um, a moment ago is that these places are especially, like we see them especially outside the South. Um, the South had its own kind of racial system and system, system of racial enforcement around Jim Crow segregation. And, and in part two, especially thinking about Black populations is that there are a lot more Black people living in the South. But in the West, the Midwest, the North, the Northeast, especially this is where we see these practices including in Maryland and Virginia. And I also want to note before we move on from this a little bit about the timing. Um, of course, I'm a historian. And so, I mean, one of the things that we're interested in is, is when did this happen? And, and because one of the things we know about studying history is that things have particular contexts and happen in particular moments for particular reasons. Sundown towns really start to emerge in the late 19th century, paralleling this same moment in which there is a, a great migration um, out of the South, sometimes to places like Oklahoma and Texas, sometimes to the West Coast, sometimes North, and, and that like accompanying that migration often into places into small towns are new practices for deciding who can live in these spaces. Um, it also, by the way, parallels this moment in which uh, Chinese migrants, many of them who had been um, really uh, recruited to come to this country to build the railroad, that once the railroad is finished, um, that increasingly like all of these small towns across the West that had Chinatowns, Chinese communities driving populations out, driving them into cities, into places like San Francisco, Boston, places across the country. So I mentioned that just to note that this practice is historically specific and it really takes off in the late 19th century, probably peaks around 1970, paralleling the civil rights movement. Uh, but we also know that these practices, even if there is a peak around the 1960s, 1970s, that these practices persist in many places. Uh, before getting into more specifics about talking to some of these places, I also want to talk just briefly about why does it matter if especially this thinking about these practices in the past and thinking about places that may no longer be a sundown town, 
Why does it matter that we talk about this history? And I wanna actually bring up something that any of you who know Jim very well at all have probably heard, probably heard Jim say this. Telling the truth about the past helps cause justice in the present. Achieving justice in the present helps us tell the truth about the past. And I wanna just take a moment to connect those things and say that, that one of the reasons this work is important, this hard work, hard history, one of the reasons is important is that the stakes are high. And I wanna connect this to what Jim is, has said here in terms of the past, the present, and also thinking about the future. That when we think about studying the past and telling the truth about the past, getting history right is really important. Whether that's getting the history right about the Civil War, about segregation, about Jim Crow, or about these sundown towns. And in fact, like this practice of sundown towns, if, if I go to places, including teaching students and talk about segregation and Jim Crow, they know what I'm talking about. They know like something about that system. Most people aren't familiar with this system of sundown towns, even though it proliferated uh, across the country in this same moment. Telling that truth about the past is really important for getting the past right. It's also important to the present. It's important for social justice efforts. And one of the points that, that Jim, um, one of the things that Jim discovered initially in doing this research is that a lot of these sundown towns have a legacy, um, a legacy of racial disparities, a legacy of policing issues, a legacy of lack of understanding uh, across racial lines, across all kinds of other lines, uh, places that used to be sundown towns that maybe aren't anymore. And that there's this connection between this history of sundown towns and, and what's happening in these places in the present. And then I also just want to gesture for a moment to the future and note that, that part of understanding this past and, and the ways in which it's connected to the present is also about thinking about the future and thinking about a different future, thinking about how people come together as a community, thinking about what it means to talk about a community as a we versus an us and them. And that that too is really important to this work. So with that in mind, I wanna talk a little bit about what we do as part of this group. Um, we research and document um, these efforts, the, the, the history of the, these things in the past, things in the present. And it is about getting that information on the database. We have people uh, coming to the website, a lot of thousands of people come to the website to see like what places are listed, what we know about those places. That is a lot of the research that we do. It's about documenting, documenting it. Um, it's also our hope that we can work with communities, that once a community is listed as a place that was a sudden downtown or even still is a sundown town, that they will be eager to want to do something about that. Um, and we encourage, and this is building on the things that, that Jim was doing, um, a three-step process, getting them to acknowledge this past, to say, this is what our town did. Second, getting them to apologize, to say, it was wrong, this town should not have done this. And then third, and thinking again about the future, getting them to think about, so what do you do now? Like, what do you do to create a more welcoming, more inclusive, 
community, whether that's hiring initiatives or, um, or ways in which you can work within the community. And I just want to note on that last uh, moment that several of the places we've work in, worked with um, who have been trying to take steps like this include Goshen, Indiana, uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I'll just bring up um, a proclamation. This is from 2016, in which they issued an official proclamation. I don't expect anybody to be able to read the small text here. I can't read it myself at this point, but um, but to note that there are like this is about apologizing, acknowledging, and pledging to do something different. Um, and I also just note that recently, uh, Glendale, California has also taken some steps. And as recently as this week, uh, Pasadena, California has also taken steps to acknowledge this more troubling uh, past and thinking about what do you do going forward. And I want to note just as we move into this next segment is that this work, I keep saying we, that we do this, we document this, that we is not such a large group of people, and we are quite dependent on volunteers to help us do this research, whether it's to help us uncover additional listings, places that should be in this database that are not, or to provide updated information for the places that we have, that keeping up with the information, and I'll show you a little bit of that in a moment. Um, so I want to shift gears, though, and actually just to sort of like bring this message into the place where we are, the D.C. metro area. And I, this is also from the website from that same database. I've zoomed in a bit on this particular place just so you can see around D.C., Maryland, Virginia, into Philadelphia, that there are uh, some places that we know either were or are still sundown towns. And I also want to bring up a list. If you go to our website, you can search you can search on this map for a particular location. You can also search by state. And if you did that for Maryland and Virginia, these are the places you would find in our website listed as sundown towns in the past and or the present. Um, and I've also, as you might note here, highlighted three of them in green because I want to talk, I'll talk about Savage, Maryland in a moment, but uh, given especially where we are um, in DC, I want to talk about a, a couple of places that are really close to you um, in Brentwood and Mount Rainier. Uh, and I hope I am pronouncing Mount Rainier uh, correctly. I did a lot of research in the last couple of weeks on how to pronounce that in DC. Um, and I want to also like start by just noting um, a little bit about about Brentwood is that uh, Brentwood does have this long history of, of racial exclusion of excluding particular groups. Maceo, Maceo and I were just talking about this before the, the program began today. Um, and in particular, Brentwood uh, post Civil War, there was a union officer who donated land that was originally settled by Black veterans, that the land was uh, was uh, going to be uh, settled by that this group, this area that became known as North Brentwood. And after that settlement, North Brentwood is then cut off from neighboring towns, from Brentwood, from Hyattsville, from Mount Rainier, um, and this is one of the places early on that Jim was doing research that was part of the book, um, research about uh, ways in which, like, how did uh, the, the, the community of Brentwood uh, keep people out of this place? And so Jim did research, he did census research to, to, to show the numbers that there is this racial disparity historically. 
he also talked to people. And one of the people he talked to mentioned like, how did, how is it possible? Like if you're in North Brentwood, what's to stop somebody from crossing that line? These lines are very um, almost invisible. Um, and the person noted Brentwood had a Ku Klux Klan presence. Uh, there was also a great deal of harassment. And they referred to be having, when you're in Brentwood, having to go through it quickly, like as a kid, having to fly through that neighborhood on your bike, knowing that people might call you names, that they might throw things at you, that uh, really like this system of intimidation and fear and threats and potentially violence. Um, and it's also worth noting that in this early history of exclusion, um, that there were, that within the, the neighborhood of North Brentwood, that uh, parents, much as, as we know this happens today as well, warned their children about being careful about in Brentwood, about going through the place quickly um, and being careful and especially being fearful of what white people might do going through this community. And I'll just note in terms of the numbers that as late as 1960, Brentwood still had only six black residents. Um, in terms of Mount Rainier, um, I wanna just note a couple of things about that. The original charter, prohibited black people from voting in city elections. Uh, we also know from looking at the historical documents early on, city officials were uh, Ku Klux Klan members, and we've been able to, to find some sundown practices as late as the late 1940s. And I know by the way that like, that like Mount Rainier has changed a great deal over the years. Um, and just reminding us though of this kind of earlier moment, including in 1955, when the high school in Mount Rainier is integrated, um, and one of the students talked about being one of the, those two students to integrate, um, about going into a school where all of the teachers were white, um, and also talked about being uh, how afraid they were, naturally thinking about like, like what it means to like take those kinds of risks to be in the school, but also talking about that like they had, had been essentially in like learn to be afraid of the white students. And the white students talked about the same thing about being told they should be afraid of these black students in this school, 1955. Um, and I'll just note in just in passing, I encourage people to check out the website. We also know of various kinds of practices in Chevy Chase and Greenbelt, um, other places not too far from where you are, um, as well as in Virginia, and you can see some of those listed here. And I also want to note, this is not a complete list. We have not documented them all, and I want to shift in this last segment to where you come into that part of the equation, hopefully. Uh, talk a little bit about researching sundown towns, and again, I'll put up a, free, a few screenshots from the website. Um, here, just want to note that um, that as you go into the website and click on Sundown Towns, this is that page that you'll click on that'll get you into the database in which you can search in particular states, or you can search that map on the right, uh, a particular red dot if you know where the place is you're looking for. Um, and I want to just note that in doing the research, um, it's essentially a three-step process that um, it involves doing census data, doing some local research into published sources, and then ideally doing some oral interviews with local people in or near that area. Um, and I just want to talk uh, just briefly through these through these three things. This is not meant to be a comprehensive, like stepping out of this five minutes later, 
you can sit down and 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 necessarily um, start this, but it'll give you an idea of what we do. And I also want to encourage people to reach out to me afterwards if you want to talk about next steps and how to do this. I also want to note that all of the things I'm talking about, that we have a lot of information on the research in more detail about how to do this research on sundown towns. You can see the website up here on this particular slide. And I want to just quickly walk through these three steps. Uh, the first, and in some some ways the trickiest, I think, just because of how um, complicated like census uh, data is over the years is doing the census research. And here I wanna just show you a little bit of, of what's key to this website. This is a page that we've put up for Savage, Maryland. It's a place that we've just listed recently, thanks to the efforts of somebody doing research locally. And there are, there's a lot of information on this page. I uh, I note, for example, under sundown town status, that there are references to whether um, it, it was a sundown town or or whether it you know, whether it still is as well. Um, but I'll, for the moment, I want to direct you to that area that says census census information. Um, and let me just assuming that your vision is similar to mine, um, or um, or uh, maybe it's probably better than mine. Um, just want to zoom in on that information. And what we see on this chart is the results of somebody going census by census from 1860 to 2020. You'll note that we're missing a couple of decades there, documenting how many people are in this town according to the census, and then documenting that by race. Um, and I've, I've put a, a red circle around uh, these decades because that's a clue that there's something happening there, that if you came across the census data and saw that like decade after decade, there's there are zero black people living in this town, especially when we know there are people nearby black people in, um, you know, not too far away in Baltimore and DC, that is a signal that there might be something going on in this place. Or if you saw that population drop dramatically from one decade to the other. Um, it's suspicious. It's not enough by itself, but it tells us that we should do some more digging. And if you were to do any of this research to start on a town, um, I want to give you a couple of suggestions about the census. Here are um, a couple of websites. The first one will get you into the database for all of the U.S. census information going all the way back. Um, and if you click on publications, it'll take you to that second site, which is the place you want to be to then start digging into the, the particular census that you might be looking for. Um, and as a reminder, I actually want to say before I get into that, the other way to do census data besides going to the website is to go to a library that has um, these things in hard copies. Those are actually much easier to use uh, than the than the digital version. So if you are old school, I encourage you to go to the library. That's actually what I ask my students to do. Um, and they will 100% agree that it is much easier to do this uh, looking at the hard copies. But if you do go to the digital copies, which is easier to do from home, um, and you click on that publication site, it brings you to, to this page. And I'll just note, just in passing, um, like under that categories on the left under topics, that's where you want to go. And if you click on that place that says more, you'll see something that says population. And I just want to remind you, again, 
I, I'm, I don't want this to seem overwhelming because there's so much stuff on the census, but I just want to remind you when you get there, you're really looking for population and you're looking for population based on racial categories. And so your key parameters are to say, I'm looking for population. I'm looking for a particular decade. I'm looking for those categories by race and color. I'm looking for, of course, you know, what state is this in? Because that's how the census is organized. And then the city or, or and or county name. And if it's a smaller place, it may be hard to track down that in the actual census. But there are also manuscript roles in which you can go black block by block to see who was on that particular county. Those are the parameters you're looking for. Um, and one other thing I'll note before moving on from the census is that in many decades, the information that we want is in either volume two or volume three. And again, I know that what I've just covered is really technical um, and, I, and don't worry about if any of that didn't make sense, I encourage you to reach out to us. It is, um, it is fairly straightforward once you get into it. Um, and I just wanna show you the results of if you had done some of this research and gone into, let's say 1940, you were inter interested in Mount Rainier, um, this would eventually lead you to a page that looks like this. You'll note that it is volume two. Um, and this is on page 62. I think this document was about 100 pages. Um, and I'll just zoom in a bit here as well. So here is the listing, the total population, just under 5,000 people. And we see that under like this category, Negro, two people are Black. Um, and both of them listed as female, by the way, which might mean um, like potentially they are working for a white family. That's quite common in these circumstances. Uh, but again, this is that first step that tells us, hmm, there's something like this is potentially suspicious. That's when you'd want to go to the next step, local history sources. Um, and in terms of doing this local history research, um, really it is about um, starting with like how you would want to like explore the local history of any place, like starting to like ask, well, what histories have been published about this particular place? Um, and some of the places you might look are published local histories, like a history of the town. Those things will often be in local libraries, historical societies, maybe a university archives or near, nearby college library. Um, you can also do a lot of searching online, starting with Google, that often that leads to something. And what you're really looking for is, like, is there something that happened, especially if you notice like a, a decade in which the, like a particular population, the number drops, focus on what happened the decade before and ask, was there some event that explains this dramatic drop? Or is there something like that you see in the beginning that suggests some kind of, of practices of exclusion? Um, you can also then check local newspapers. A lot of local newspapers have been digitized, which is really great. It makes them searchable. Uh, some papers have index or vertical, vertical file clippings, which are often in local libraries. These are incredible resources. Uh, there are some paid services like newspapers.com, but there are also uh, a lot of these papers are um, available for free depending on where you are. And in some cases, like entire states, like California has put a lot of money into digitizing local newspapers going uh, way back. Uh, so that's a good source. And again, you're looking for an event. Did something happen? And so you'll want to put in search terms that are, especially if it's the digital form, that help you figure out like, um, like 
did something happen. So you, you might about what kinds of terminology might show up in a place. If you're looking for Chinese exclusion, um, you know, various ways you might search for that, thinking about like, what's the terminology people use. Again, here too, we are happy to help you with this work. Um, and then the third uh, option is newspapers in nearby towns and cities that often, if something traumatic happened happen in a particular town, they might not have reported it, but a nearby town or city might have reported it. And then quickly, I want to mention, um, oh, and by the way, in terms of search terms, uh, looking up uh, Ku Klux Klan is also um, a, a way that might clue you into things happening in that place. And then in just the third step, I just want to highlight this and note that once that work is done, like you've looked in the census, you've looked for evidence in local history sources, which honestly, a lot of times that's kind of tricky. A lot of things doesn't show up, don't show up there. Then is the time to um, to talk to people in the town and and ask them, you know, what do they know about this town? And some of the people who are really good sources, um, especially a starting point, are librarians. And librarians might or might not know the history of the town, but they will like have almost surely will have suggestions about who you could talk to. Um, and there are lots of other good possibilities. Genealogists are a good possibility in a local place. Uh, local NAACP and other um, civil rights organizations also might be good opportunities. Um, and also want to note nearby communities that often like a place that's like five miles away, 10 miles away, they know these histories of these things. And in some ways they're much more comfortable talking about it than people in the community might be talking about it. And so thinking creatively and always as you're interviewing people, the key, first of all, is, I mean, this is something Jim always talked about is like, you want to like start kind of soft and ask open-ended questions, like ask them questions about the history of the town, about the businesses in the town, um, and sort of like get into then open-ended questions like, do you know anything about the absence of Black people in this town? Have you heard if it might have been on purpose? Any stories about X decade, that decade that you want to know something about? Um, any events, anything about like a Ku Klux Klan chapter in this particular town, which, by the way, those two all over the country in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so finally, I just want to mention, too, that local historians, local historical society can potentially be a good source. They often have a great deal invested in protecting the reputation of a town. So depending on who you're talking to, they may or may not be resistant to wanting to share like troubling histories of these places. So finally, I just want to note that the goal across these things, the census data, the doing the research into local history, doing the oral interviews, uh, the goal is to find uh, cooperating evidence, to find like, okay, something was suspicious in the census data. Now I've made this other connection that, that tells me that like these things are connected, that there's a relationship there, that that's part of doing good, reliable historical research that you're able to see like this isn't just one piece of evidence, but in fact, there are several things here that connect that will tell us more strongly how, how sure we are whether or not a place is or was a sundown town, that you want those things to support each other. And the more specific the information, the better, the more detail, the better. So in conclusion, I just want to note that the this sundown towns research coming back to Jim's quote is about telling the truth about the past. It's about 
focusing on social justice in the present. And it's also about thinking about particular communities in the future and what kind of communities they want to be. And I wanna just end by noting what we need from you. Um, we need research on other possible towns. We need updated information on towns that are on our website. So as you explore that website, if you see that, oh, like we don't have all the census data in for every decade. And in some cases, it may not be in there at all. Um, it is somewhere like we have done this research at some point, but we've switched to a new uh, website. And there's a lot of places in which we could use some updates. And so I want to encourage you if like, you're not ready to do the full on three steps, um, but you just want to add to what we have, check out some places that you might know about or that you might want to know about. And I just want to um, like conclude by putting this slide up to really re-emphasize, I am available to help you. This is, both of these emails go to me. This is the website again, and I hope that you will all reach out to me. Thank you all very much. Really a pleasure to be here with you all today. Thank you so much, Stephen. This is fascinating, and I appreciate that you're pointing some ways that we can um, learn about and engage in the growing knowledge of past practices and uh, leaning into the truth of our history. After some music, we'll have community sharing time when you can write into the chat about what resonated with you in this platform. In this time between, you might prepare for community sharing by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity at West that illustrates the values that we are lifting up today. As we contemplate, rest, and reflect, let us experience the beauty of the musical response. Cuando el pobre nada tiene y aún reparte Cuando alguien pasa sed y agua no está, cuando el débil a su hermano fortalece, va el amor mismo en nuestro mismo caminar. Va el amor mismo en nuestro mismo caminar. When our spirits, like a chalice, brim with gladness. When our voices, full and clear, sing out the truth. When our longings, free from envy, seek the humble, we feel the by our side, guiding the way. We feel love here by our side, guiding the way. When the goodness poured from heaven fills 
our dwellings And when the nations work to change war into peace When the stranger is accepted as our neighbor We feel love here by our side guiding the ways We can feel that love here by our side guiding the ways This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates in our own lives. So I invite you to share in the Zoom chat if you are joining us live or in the comments if you are watching the recording later. And I'll read a few things that folks have posted. Vincent Tyler notes, uh, he was correct about Mount Rainier. I grew up around that neighborhood. Even in the late 60s and early 70s, if you were young and black and just walking around Mount Rainier, you were absolutely confronted by police and either given a ride out of town or followed behind until you did or were let into someone's house. There may be no more bells or whistles, but I know for a fact sundown towns still exist. If you think they don't, you are just kidding yourself. Hmm. Judy Ohm says, thank you for the explanation of this tool. A hand up support services says, thanks to the speaker for this research. Vincent and I were unfortunately forced to explain racism to our son going through the town of Friendsville. The irony of that, right? We knew we had stopped in the wrong town driving down the main street, but we decided to just run into the McDonald's. When we got out of the car and headed towards the door, we were made aware that we were unwelcome there. Vincent and I checked, I checked each other and decided to bail and to our son to get back into the car. He went to Lowell School, had no idea. Vincent and I then spent a bit of the, I'm sorry, it just jumped funny, bit of the next three hours as we drove to my West Virginia hometown, how sometimes some people will not like you because of your skin and it is best to just leave them alone. We were sad. Another time on that route, we had a black local stop to make sure we were okay when we stopped to take pictures at a pull-off. Said, you just wanna be careful stopping around here. It has not been long. Laura Steele notes, for those of us originally from Long Island, there's a Newsday article from November 17th, 19, uh, sorry, 2019, I'm assuming, dividing lines all about the history of exclusion of blacks in so many places, including my hometown, Roslyn Heights. Adia Hewitt says, I used to live in Chevy Chase where the speaker said about zoning resonates. Too often the excuse of, we want to preserve the character of this town that is raised when the city proposes new housing is cover for, we don't want your kind here. Maceo Thomas says, Stephen, this was great. Had no idea you were going to mention my family's hometown of North Brentwood. I grew up hearing my dad, who was on the call, and his siblings and cousins talking about running home. 
it's great to have these conversations more openly than just at family holidays. Thank you and Jim for your work in telling these histories that have been erased. Another comment. Thank you, Stephen. That was chock full of good information. I must confess that I had not heard the term sundown town before today. Thank you again. Jeff Mihal says, this was a fantastic platform. I've been thinking about a visit I made to a famous slash infamous sundown town, Pendleton, Oregon. There, the local sundown laws were directed toward the Chinese who had helped build the Union Pacific Line to Portland. The response of the local Chinese was particularly ingenious. They built an entire underground complex to which they would retreat at night. I've toured this and seen the living quarters, stores, restaurants, and various entertainment visits. Musa says, wow, and it just occurred to me how about three years ago, coming from Joe's movement in Porium at night, me and friends were stopped by police in our car after doing a U-turn. Vestiges of sundowning surely continues. Adam Limehouse says, thinking about the history of Silver Spring, Maryland being a sundown town. And Sharon Conway says, in my 75 years of blackness, I have encountered more sundown towns than I can list here in the time allowed. Some were overt and others we just knew through our seventh sense, our black sense. Thank you for this information. Victor Steckel says, thank you, Stephen, for making us more aware of another tool of the white culture in excluding people of color from sharing in the so-called American dream. There are so many ways, including the unequal use of social security, the GI Bill, redlining, voting rights, and even the NFL's categorization of white and black players benefits from brain damage. And Adam's adding fantastic platform. Julie Drizzen says, it's infuriating and frustrating to live in a country where so many, perhaps the majority, are in denial about the many forms of racial terror in our history and our present day. Judy Ohms, I believe it's so important to keep in mind that this is only in the past in that exclusion has taken different forms. The feelings behind them remain. Framing it as the past is part of what allowed me to believe that I lived in a post-racial society. I'm a white middle-class woman and it's only in the last past few years, I learned that the 60s was not the end of racism. Laura Steele says, just wanted to add, Stephen, be good to add Bowie, Maryland to your list. Another Levitt and Sons built community with the same covenant as Levittown, Long Island. Now I'm going to look up Ellicott City where I now live. Uncle, Dar Der excuse me, Uncle Devin Walker says, I remember traveling to Spokane, Washington in the mid-1950s for my job. And the moment I arrived, I was immediately warned to not stray too far away from the hotel I was staying at because they did not welcome blacks. I am black, so I really appreciated their advice. Trang Wong says, thank you, Stephen, for shedding light on the past and how this impacts our current and future. It's very important to learn from the past. And Walter Ewing says, I grew up going on interviews for a book Montgomery County, a pictorial history with the author, my mom. I'm glad to now have a word for what I saw. And Uncle Devin Walker uh, clarifies that he was traveling to Spokane, Washington in the 1990s when he experienced that warning about being safe and staying 
close to the hotel. So, lots of powerful testimonies of lived experiences and prompts to learn more. Thank you for these comments. Informal sharing may continue in the chat and certainly in our virtual coffee hour after platform. Our speaker, Stephen, has volunteered to be available at virtual coffee hour for a question and answer breakout group. So please do stay for coffee hour if you would like to continue the conversation. And just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, half of the offering is dedicated to the Washington Interfaith Network, or WIN. WIN is a broad-based, multiracial, multi-faith, strictly nonpartisan, district-wide citizens' power organization. They're rooted in local congregations and associations. WIN's 48 member organizations, which include the Washington Ethical Society, represent 25,000 families in every section of the district and reflect its theological, racial, geographic, and economic diversity. WIN is committed to training and developing neighborhood leaders, to addressing community issues, and to holding elected and corporate officials accountable in Washington, D.C. On the slide, you will see the number to give by text, which is 202-335-1885. And you can also make a gift online through the donate button on our website at ethicalsociety.org. Thank you for your generosity. We will now receive your gifts and the musicians' gifts of music. Thank you so much to the many people who helped to create this morning's time together. Thank you to Intermusic Coordinator Leah Morris and guest music musicians Elise Witt, 
Track Tribe that we just heard from, and the West Band and Chorus that we'll hear from shortly. Thanks to Maceo Thomas, our membership coordinator. Thank you to John and Abby Dakin who created our slides and to Robin Kravitz for communication support. Thanks to Adam Goldberg for hosting the upcoming virtual coffee hour. Thank you to Zoom usher Kate Lang and the tech team that included John Leka, Denise Howell, and John Pfeiffer. And thanks once again to our guest speaker, Dr. Stephen Berry. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for virtual coffee hour. Once we're in the Zoom coffee hour space, we'll divide into breakout groups for small group social chatting. For today, there is also a breakout group for question and answers with our guest speaker. To get to coffee hour after closing words, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. Thanks also to those who are leading and supporting our work in the weeks to come. You can find information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails. And here's some of the latest news. Communications coordinator Robin Kravitz will be away through February 9th, but she set up the news and notes before she left, so you should still look for that in your email on Thursday with all upcoming details. Sunday Ethical Education for Kids, otherwise known as SEEK, is keeping up with COVID safety standards while providing as much continuity as possible. Changes are happening quickly, so your best bet is to go to the source by connecting with Indara Miles and Linda Irizarry. Please watch your email and the SEEK Facebook group for updates. And for all age groups, please be sure your family is registered. If you aren't already receiving the SEEK newsletter, please contact Indara Miles, and those details will be in the chat. Today, and then again on March 6th, both at 1 o'clock, join the combined West Biology and Philosophy groups to discuss BEHAVE, the biology of humans at our best and worst, by uh, Robert Sap Sapolsky. Chapters 1 to 10 will be covered today, and the remaining chapters on March 6th. If you've read the book, you can come to share your thoughts or just join in for the summary and discussion. If a member of that group has the link for today's meeting, please feel free to drop that into the chat. Our next Path to Membership series of sessions begins next week on February 13th. Anyone who is exploring the idea of becoming a West member should reach out to Membership Coordinator Maceo Thomas for more details, and his contact will also be in the chat. Next Sunday, February 13th, Interim Leader Lynn Cox will lead a platform in the tradition of pay attention to Love Day. Feminist scholar and poet Bell Hooks wrote, to love well is the task in all meaningful relationships, not just romantic bonds. What might we learn about life and liberation from a broad practice of love? Join us on Zoom next Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to continue this conversation. And there's a lot going on. You can see the calendar with upcoming events on the West website. And thanks to all of you for being part of Platform this morning or later via Facebook and YouTube. Let's enjoy our closing song of the month. Circle, draw the circle wide. No 
one stands alone, we stand side by side. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. No one stands alone, we stand side by side. reminders as we close. If you are new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. To reach the virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. Remember that you may choose social time or ask to join Stephen for the Q&A. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment, widening the circle of love and justice for our hearts and for our quest for a better world. Thank you for being here for Virtual Platform. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. Wow, Stephen, thank you. Thank you, Maceo.
I had no idea you were going to mention North Brentwood. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's such a, I'm fascinated by the history of that place. And I actually was going to ask you, because I know that a couple of people Jim interviewed have the last name Thomas. Um, and so that may be your kin, um, Eleanor Thomas. And that's my um, aunt. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, I think the other, the other person was Bill Thomas. That's my dad. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> 